Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And good morning, everyone, and welcome to Perf Web 79, day one. I'm your host, Joe Basha. Uh, we're going to have a great show today, albeit I'm going to be here by myself because Tammy uh, got called this morning for a type one dissection. I guess all those biddings of the wheels, and she finally got the, uh, the luck of the draw on that deal. Um, so good luck, Tammy, on your type one dissection. Uh, I hope that case goes very well. Um, or it doesn't go and they get the patient transferred someplace else. That'd be even better. Uh, so good morning. I want to welcome everyone to uh, our program. Uh, we should have, this is day one of a uh, of four, four days? Three days. Three days. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, and uh, we're going to get started right away, get our opening remarks out of the way. Uh, check out our app. If you have not up, What? okay, what am I doing? Am I doing... Okay, so contact at perfusioneducation.com if you want to reach out to us. You're going to see some stuff on the scroll bar. But I'm just going to jump right into our app. Uh, we've done a couple of really cool updates on it that I think you will really value. Uh, so please check it out on the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store. Uh, and uh, it is our uh, uh, Web app. There's two. There's one for uh, uh, clinical perfusion and critical care, and there's one for uh, nurses in the ICU. The critical care app is only $2.99, and that also has the uh, IV rate calculator. Uh, so if you're an ICU nurse, be a great, it'd be a great gift to give somebody or to yourself. But if you just want the IV uh, rate calculator, that's a standalone and that's only 99 cents. But for $2.99, you get both. And it's really the best app uh, going on the market. There's no question it's the best app for critical care, ECMO specialists, perfusionists, you name it. So please get that app. What's next on the agenda? Uh, podcasts. Check out our podcasts. All of our programs go up on podcasts. And uh, you can find them on your favorite podcast streaming uh, 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 platform, whatever you want to use. And so check those out and you can listen to us in the car and uh, get to know us as people, get to know us as uh, clinicians, get to know us as content experts, get to know us as uh, opinion leaders, whatever the case may be. We've usually got great guests here in the studio, but again, you know, we're, we're it's a Tuesday and we're trying to figure out what's the best way to do this, but we're going to have a great guest today. Okay, so, so kid you not, we have a great guest today. Can I go right into that now? We're talking about the scroll bar. You see that scroll bar? All of the information that you need is on that scroll bar. You see over there our call-in number. I'm pointing to it down there. Call in if you want to be live on air, and uh, we can uh, get you talking with our guest today, which, again, let's introduce her right now because I think this is really the best. Uh, we have with us, hey, good morning, Ann. We have good with morning. us, and good morning, Ann Grecho, who is the new president of the American Board of Cardiovascular Perfusion. And I am so incredibly pleased that she is here with us. Now, do we need to get Ann more centered? Oh, could you move to your left a little, Ann? Move to your move left. To my left. There you go. Now you're, 
now you're right right in the center. So we have with us Ann Gretschow. And for those of you who don't know Ann, she's a graduate of the Texas Heart Institute uh, School of Perfusion in 1986, if I remember correctly. And uh, you are currently with Memorial Hermit. Of course, your husband, Sal, God bless him. He's, you know, recently passed a, a little while ago. There's going to be the, I think it's the, is it the 50th anniversary, right, of the Texas Heart Institute School of Perfusion. And they're going to be announcing a uh, a uh, a uh, a grant. Is it what's it's not called a memorial? Is it? A, it's called a grant of some sort, right? And maybe you could explain it. Certainly. So first of all, Joe, thanks for having me this morning. I'm sorry I couldn't be with you in person. I know we have a lot more fun in person, but you're dressed as I am. It looks like this morning. Yes, so ma'am. We're we're still we're working and and trying to do it all. So. Um, in terms of the 50th anniversary of Texas Heart Institute School of Perfusion, we are going to award our first ever Sal Memorial uh, Gretto Scholarship. Outstanding. Scholarship. That's the word I was looking for. You know, I had COVID. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I had COVID. Oh, um, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I went through all of this, got the vaccine, got the booster, worked around it before the vaccine ever existed, worked through it while the vaccine, you know, I was getting the first dose, second dose, and then later the third dose, this booster shot, made it through all of that, and then got COVID. And either the vaccines didn't work and I got COVID, and COVID was really bad. It really, it was terrible. It felt terrible. Or the, the vaccine really worked because if, it blunted it in any way and it was effective it would have probably killed me it was horrible and uh i for four days i just i couldn't move i thought i i just wanted to die it was horrible and so uh, but i'm getting over it i'm much better now um you know it's it's really hard to you know kill people like me you know we're just too mean to get killed too mean to die meaner than the virus that's what they think anyway sometimes um but anyway, I wanted to congratulate you. I'm very, of course, I'm very proud of, of, of the uh, new scholarship that's going to be introduced this year at Texas Heart Institute. I think that's such a, a fitting thing to do and such a beautiful thing to do. And I know that something you have to be very proud of, but you need to be proud of yourself and your own personal accomplishments. You've been in this profession for a very long time. You have contributed so incredibly so so significantly uh, over all of these years, continue to be a contributor to this uh, to this profession that I've been in for a long time as well, and truly love and want to see endure and grow and do well. And now, as the uh, president of the ABCP, uh, you 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 have earned a well deserved thank you for everything you have done for the uh, profession of perfusion. Oh, Joe, that's that's so nice. Um, but I, I agree with you that I'm still doing this because I want it to continue for every new grad, every perfusionist out there that loves this profession as much as we do. Um, there are some forces out there as healthcare changes that we're always going to be dealing with, but um, I just really want to make sure that we've got a future for all of our peers. 
Absolutely. So I'm very much looking forward to your presentation and then we can have some really, I think, very good, robust discussions. I've got several questions that I have been wanting to ask you, and I think this is a great platform to do that with. But uh, I know that the American board is going through some very significant changes and uh, the future of the board uh, is something that is now, you know, you are at the helm of and we'd like to know what uh, what 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 the future looks like for this very important uh, institution. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And um, so, as I present, you know, Joe, I'll stop every now and again, and you know, you you're uh, free to interject um, along the way. So, thank you. I mean, I I know we would banter better in person off each other, but you're you're certainly welcome to. Um, jump in on my presentation. Okay, so the topic is future of the ABCP. And again, we, we want, it could be a dry subject and oh yeah, the board, I got certified and I recertify and that's kind of it. But there's a lot more going on there with the American board and who we collaborate with and, and how we work with these other organizations to you know, try to keep your credential at the high standard it is. You've earned it and you um, are stewards of it. And we want to make sure that continues. We want to also be able to roll with the changes in our technology, things that are coming along things that come up, how that affects the certification and recertification cycle and um, standards and requirements. So we really want to collaborate with all of you, all of our CCPs. That's what we're, we're here to credential you, but we're also here to represent you and hear from you. So if there's anything from this presentation I'd like you to take away is that please let us know. We, we really want to represent you. We want to know what's happening to everyone in their practice, whether it's large or small, rural, or very, you know, urban. So with that, we have our objectives here, and I just, we just understand the board's role a little bit more, the other organizations a little bit more, and then how we all can work together and contribute and and be mindful and and caretakers of this wonderful profession we call perfusion uh, next slide so again this is our mission statement it's it's on the website it's been this way for many many years we've been um, credentialing perfusionists since 1975 and um, I know as an older perfusionist in years in this profession, as Joe is uh, also. <laughs> Not old, just many years in the profession. I started we, young. We, we, see, we, we read this mission statement, we, we are aware of this mission statement, but um, it really is what we're here to do is uh, maintain the quality standard, promote safety and protection of the public, and put a structure in place that credentials you in a way that um, is meaningful and 
also in a way that provides structure for you to remain active um, and get that continuing education to stay up to speed with what's going on in the profession and to continue to improve your skill set and your, your practice. So any comments about that, Joe? Um, no, let's, let's, I think move forward. And, uh, I think these are, this is very, very good. Um, I want to, I want to reserve a couple of my, my thoughts and questions. We may come back to it. Okay, great. Next slide. Okay. So the title is the future of the ABCP, but it's always helpful to know where you So I just wanted to kind of go back to the beginning of actually this credential that we're, um, that, that is our high standard today. So for anybody who was around at this time, and I know there's several people watching that weren't even born, and that's okay, that's great. Um, Perfusion kind of was born out of technology and sometimes it just depended on where you were and what you were doing that you might be asked to learn this technology. It could have been a nurse, in an operating room, a physician, a research clinician. Um, you know, basically, as heart-lung machine and cardiopulmonary bypass was being developed, it had no structure in terms of who was performing it. And you know, that's that's kind of the wild west. So, in an effort to bring some structure around it, AMSECT was probably the first professional organization for perfusion, um, had an education committee, and they basically wanted to gain knowledge about who was doing what and how they were doing it, and could there ever be a standardized examination that would prove your certification and your ability and your competency to perform perfusion. So they basically uh, worked for a couple of years on gathering the knowledge base. I believe they um, asked perfusionists who had done about 100 cases to uh, provide feedback and maybe even questions. So they, they developed this exam for the first time and gave it their um, process so that they could establish some sort of baseline. So once they accomplished that, they realized that as a professional organization, they probably should have that certification done by a, maybe a neutral entity or a different entity that just did that. So really that's how the ABCP got started. So they basically took the work that AMSECT had done with the standards guidelines, the exam information, and uh, came up with the test that was, at the time was administered in two parts, uh, written followed by an oral examination. And I know Joe has fond memories of his orals, as do I. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to go back to that, Anne. I've, I've heard you say that, and, I, and you're not the only person who's mentioned it. So um, I know we'll get to that later as conversation, and hopefully some of the audience can give their perspective too. So we, we, the ABCP rolled along like that in about 1986. 
they they were they were we were credentialing programs also education programs from 1975 to 1986 but again that needed to go to um, a more formal allied health um, organization and that was uh, CAHIA, uh respiratory therapists uh, x-ray techs um, first assistants all those allied health professions you can think of um, they were credentialing all those programs. So we, we gave that over to them in 1986. So probably one of the bigger changes in our examination came in 1996, where we moved from a norm referenced to a criterion's reference examination. And what that means is, is instead of grading on the curve or doing percentiles of the examinee cohort, we basically changed it to where an individual is just testing against the test. So if, if all examinees could meet the passing criteria for the exam, everyone would pass. You weren't, you weren't lumped together on how well people performed or didn't perform on any particular exam. So and that was a change there. And, and that's what they call the being graded on a curve versus just being graded on a percentage of correct versus incorrect answers. Correct. That's what they meant by that. So if you had, let's just hypothetically say, 100 people take the test, then there was no way, the old style, that all 100 could pass it unless they all aced it. If everybody aced it, well, that'd be a different issue, but that's not going to happen. So you took the highest and the lowest and then the middle, and then I guess created a curve and had some cutoff point where if you were to the right of the curve, you passed, the left of the curve, you failed. Right. And I remember when I took my exam, you know, you would, you would get a rank as a percentile. And, you know, if you were, you made the percentile, you passed. If you didn't, you failed. So mm -hmm. it was all about how well everyone was performing on the exam instead of how an individual could perform against just the exam itself. Mm -hmm. So we did change that. It just seemed to be uh, a better way to examine. Uh, we do have uh, PhDs in education that are executive directors on our board that um, counsel us on examination process. Uh, analytics, that's how that came about in 96. And also at that point, the oral exam went away and was replaced by a written clinical applications portion. So that's when the second part of the exam became written and not oral. And then as you know, technology advances, we did go to computer-based in 2006 for these two portions of the exam, which are referred to now as the basic science exam, the PBSE, and then the clinical applications exam or the CAPE. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, and that's where we still are today. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. So there's a lot to unpack, you know, in this slide just on its own. Um, now, Going all the way back to 73, 74 and the transition from AMSEC to the uh, American Board for Certification, 
both of those involved Charlie, right? Charlie Reed was involved, of course, in AMSECT and then in the American board. Um, him and uh, who uh, there was uh, him, Jerry Dobbs, James Deering. I guess those guys were all around during that period of time and were, I think, involved in that. And what happened with because AMSECT, of course, transitioned the board, the, the certification over to them to the board, created the board, and then, of course, the certification. And then AMSECT, you know, it sort of evolved in a different way. Uh, from the board and both really have taken very different pathways because they both have different missions, of course. And I think some people may not really completely understand the difference in AMSECT and what their role is um, because, of course, it's gotten muddied with some things. And we can discuss that later in the discussion, the further discussions, but then the board. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on those two, that that piece? AMSECT versus the board and what the two of them are meant to actually be? Well, for me, AMSECT is a professional organization for perfusionists. American Society of Extracorporeal Technology is the formal spell out of AMSECT. And it has members, whereas the American board, we're just we are your credentialing body. We provide the credential. We, we aren't looking for members per se, because we're, we're just the CC, anyone who wants to be CCP is coming through us, mostly through their education program. Mm -hmm. So we're really about the education standards the guidelines, what are the requirements to sit for the exam, uh, what are the requirements to maintain your certification. So we're really not going for the membership um, and that content. There may be agendas there for um, other things for state and local that AMSEC would be more geared for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally understand. And, and, you know, again, there's some microcertifications going on through AMSEC, which it's, it's kind of interesting, and we can talk about that a little later in terms yeah, of Yeah, I think that's the where the, I think community. that's, exactly, I think that's where the, the water gets a little muddy. Mm -hmm. And what has, I think, people somewhat, you know, confused, at least the, the young people that I come in contact with, not completely understanding what the missions of these organizations are and how they how they differ. Um, they, they work, you know, of course, and, and you only have AMSECT up here, but I think we, we should at least mention that there is another professional society mm -hmm. that we have. I know it's not relevant to this, but there's AMSECT and there's the American Academy. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about when it was founded and why it was founded uh, and how it, uh, you know, works similarly but differently than AMSEC does. But both of them are, the, are have, as far as I can understand, the same mission. Yes, very similar missions. The uh, American Academy is uh, very education-focused and 
very supportive of students. And I'm not saying AMSECT is not, they are too. Uh, they just do it in uh, different ways and have different um, tools that are available. So in the academy, you have um, fellows membership. And if you are a fellow in the academy, you, you are um, to present. You're, put, you're, you're to put content together and actually sponsor student papers. So it's really about edu education and the student experience as they become professional perfusionists. Mm -hmm. And I know that, uh, yes, and different from AMSECT in the sense that AMSECT seems more political. Um, American Academy does not seem to have the same political structure in, uh, and AMSECT has been very, um, has been a driving force in state licensure. Uh, and as far as I know, unless you're grandfathered in, every state license now requires ABCP certification. So ABCP certification, from what I recall, was a national certification. If you were ABCP, if you were a CCP, you could go to any state and and you were considered certified and could work as a as a perfusionist. So you could leave one state today and work in another state tomorrow, a completely different state across the country. That is no longer the case in about, I, I don't remember exact number now, 21 to 26 states, about half of our states are now uh, licensed states and half are not. Uh, what do you see in terms of that trend? And is the board in any way, is there, a, is there a, a, a position that the board has on state licensure versus the national certification that we used to have? And do you see personally any advantage or disadvantage to either one? So for the licensure states, they usually, as you said, they'll springboard off the American board in terms of the CCP credential. And our national office works closely with these licensure states at the beginning in terms of helping them establish criteria. But again, it can be locally driven by legislation and, and who's, who's politically involved there. Mm -hmm. So while most states will just use our our CCP requirements in terms of the clinical activity and the professional activity, you can get into some different requirements depending on your state. Like they might want continuing education every two years instead of our three-year cycle. Mm -hmm. So there can be nuances that have been created purely through state legislation. Mm -hmm. Again, they usually start with us for the information of the credential mm -hmm. and often springboard off it in terms of if we're a CCP, that's, we're going to have a license there, mm -hmm. so but it can get, it can get strange. Would you, would you allow me to be a little provocative? Um, you always are. <laughs> yes, I'm well aware. So, you know, the way I sort of view the, licensure push. I'm not anti-licensure. Um, I'm not 
pro licensure, actually. I'm really neither. I'm kind of on the fence with the whole thing. But when I look back at the evolution of that process, there was an interest from what I understand. And again, this is my understanding of it, uh, but maybe that I'm wrong. Uh, and I accept that. But it was used as a way to slow down the advance of these very large national perfusion uh, contract organizations. In particular, you had what was Sycor and then became Baxter Perfusion and so forth. And to prevent the ability to move resources back and forth in a seamless way from one account to another account in any individual state, you created the, or AMSEC promoted the creation of this state licensure under the, I believe under the, the, the guise uh, or in the stated intention of raising the level of professionalism and standing and protecting our jobs uh, from other non-perfusion entities taking over extracorporeal services that we provided, whether it be perfusion or whether it be at the NOR or the ECMO or whatever the case may be. And that um, that's sort of how it started. I don't know that that is how it continues to exist. And I think the pandemic revealed a big problem that's associated with that. When you don't have reciprocity already built in, they, there was a lot of scrambling because of how short-staffed people were needing to get perfusionists to get in, uh, mostly locums, in order to be cover, to cover the ECMOs so that the hearts that were still being done could be done. And it created a, 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 lot, of, uh, a lot of anxiety. Um, and it was very stressful for a lot of different places, in particular those places that were state-licensed states. So what are your thoughts on that, if you care to share them? And how much of what I said is accurate? How much of what I said may be inaccurate? Well, I'm not sure in terms of the large contracts group in the beginning of, of licensure. But it, I know when it was presented to Texas, where I'm licensed, um, it was about job protection, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that we were all credentialed appropriately, that we had the skill set that, you know, just not anybody could go do it, which in effect was happening anyway through the strength of the CCP credential. But again, it was just another layer perceived as protection. Mm -hmm. but, it, but again, if, if you get legislation being passed that you're not aware of, that maybe lets uh, respiratory therapy in on some things or nursing, you know, those lobbies can be, especially nursing, huge. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and they, they can make an impact and get something done that maybe you're not aware of. So I think the premise for licensure at its core is is genuine and, and for the right reasons, but it I don't know if it's lived up to the hype in some circumstances. 
No, I and and uh, and clearly, in, in my humble opinion, clearly not because you know you have ECMO specialists here in Texas that are either nursing or respiratory therapy. Um, there are programs that exist and operate without any perfusion oversight at all, uh, and that also exists, I believe, in Georgia. Uh, I, and other states as well that I, I may not know exactly which states they are. Um, you know, and I think that understanding, notwithstanding, you know, I think people go to perfusion school for all kinds of reasons, and uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult school. There's nothing easy about it. Uh, your first day when you look at this heart-lung machine and all of the lines, and people, of course, you know, you go through a process and you learn what this big jumbled mass of spaghetti you start being able to identify lines just by just by looking at where it is what it is what it looks like and there's ways that we we teach each other how we do that so that we conduct safe perfusion and what all the things that we're supposed to do it's not you know i've never really viewed perfusion if anybody wants to do my job if anybody thinks they can do my job and they care to come in and do this aortic dissection have at it Go, go right ahead. Um, the, our profession, our job is not for the faint of heart. And though I imagine there are probably are some people out there that have enough arrogance to believe, oh, I could do that, um, just as a, uh, just, just based on their experience in some other field, um, they can't. Um, it's, it would be an epic disaster. And most, I think, nurses, most respiratory therapists are very smart people. And they look at that and say, no, you, you don't do that without training. ECMO is different, but it still is an extracorporeal technology. And I wonder, I think, would we have been better off, Texas, other states, uh, would we have been better off to say, let's focus our attention and our energy and our economic power into the American board to make that strong versus having all of these individual states with all of these individual rules that they themselves are controlling because our lobby is, as you pointed out, very small, 4,500 um, lobby, 3.5 million nurses, much larger lobby. Um, and a lobby that small gets whittled down even smaller when you talk about each state and the number of perfusionists that each state has. So to me, it just seems like a, 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 a direction you have a lot of 20, 24, 25, whatever states it is, all with their own direction. And then you have the American board here with a direction. And how do you, it's like herding cats. How do you all have the same direction? Right. And I think that's where I, I still, if I take off my hat and I'm just Ann Gretcho perfusionist, I, I still think that those battles are best waged on the state and local level because there's just such variety in market depending on where you are supply demand and you know how how you're going to get these services mm -hmm. to it to everybody in our healthcare system mm -hmm. so i i feel like the board is is about the credential and about the education going out into which is a 
it's coming up more and more uh, just discussing based on some transmetics um, things that are going on with um, organ procurement and yeah. who's doing that yes yes right so like I said at the beginning there there's there's there there is pressure coming and challenges coming so yeah. it's not that we're not aware it's just where do you think you can make your best impact and as you say right now a board right now board of directors of nine people um trying to police or put in some more constraint on the united states mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's it's a big it's a it's a big project it is. It's a very big challenge. And, you know, of course, it's a we there's all these services that need to be done best served by perfusion. But if we don't have the people, the resources to do those jobs, the industry will find someone who can. That, that's that's I think that's just economics 101. The right, reality that's our free of market. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Please, let me let you continue. I have so many more questions, but if I don't let you continue, you never get through your slides. Okay, okay next slide. And again, so here's the alphabet soup slide and um, over to the left there, just showing our um, connection with the education. So Cahia kind of regrouped uh, and now they're called KHAP. Again, it's a commission on uh, allied health uh, education programs. So um, they have committees on accreditation. And so that's where you see the big square in the middle called the AC. So that is the Accreditation Committee for Perfusion Education. And we liaison, we have members on that committee. And uh, you can see the PPDC, which is the Perfusion Program Directors Council. They also um, have representation on that committee. And again, this is to ensure that perfusion programs are teaching what they need to be teaching. They're providing the clinical exposure that is required to take the board's exam when they graduate, and that the consensus curriculum is reflective of what perfusionists do in their job. Uh, we have cardiothoracic surgeons that sit on the ACPE, the anesthesiologists. So it's, it's, a, it's a very important group. And I don't think our, our um, perfusion community, you know, once, once you've passed that exam and you're certified and you just, and you're filing your cases, you know, this might be a blip on your radar, but this is really important because as schools come and go, and students, either we are starting to graduate more over the coming years, again, there's, there's market and economic consequences to that. And I, so I, I feel like this is a really important group and uh, you know we're a part of it, but um, there's lots of other um, participants as well. And we've had a lot of questions. I'm gonna show some survey results in a minute from our last survey are becoming concerned about 
influx into the market and too many of us. You know, we've heard there's not enough of us. Now people are coming a, a little more concerned about are there going to be too many of us? Mm-hmm. And as you said, the services that have been filled by industry, um, we might want to get into that more, but will we have a place? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's come up in a lot of conversation. And as new schools apply for candidacy through the ACPE, they're, they're the gatekeeper of um, programs and site visits and um, allowing programs to continue, meet their requirements, their, you know, submit their annual reports. That's why I said it's a really important group and we need to really liaison with them, collaborate with them and hear from our community, what do you think? Um, do you think that 200 graduates a year is a problem or there should be 400 graduates a year? And I'm gonna get into some future things that we're planning to do with the program directors to kind of give everyone a little better picture of what's going on year to year. And I'll go through, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. And then again, just over here on the professional societies, again, the academy there and AMSECT, we um, most, I, I think all of the board of directors for the ABCP are members of one or both of these societies, we do feel it, it is important to um, participate and be there and uh, liaison as well. Um, at one of these meetings, we usually alternate year to year. We'll do it like this past year, we did it uh, liaison panel at the academy in terms of getting the Canadian representative, the ACPE representative, ELSO, AMSECT, um, we get all these people together in a in just a breakout session where we talk about what's going on with everybody, what's everybody doing, what are their concerns, what's coming for them, and how can we all work well together. And you know, it was a little when it started. Um, I think everyone was a little unsure uh, about stepping on toes and who does what. But the more we've done this. The more we realize we're all in this together and we just need to work together. So next slide. Okay, so we did do a survey this past um, recertification cycle. Again, this um, you can opt out, but we did get about a 60% response rate. So I just wanted to show a few slides that were interesting and different from when we did this survey about five, six years ago. So for the first time in a while, we're younger and not older. (laughs) So that 50 to 59 group was actually pretty predominant for a while, which which got everyone a little concerned about retirement and a shortage and you know what are we going to do? But if you look at that now, that uh, 50 and under group is real strong, and that look at that 30 to 39 group, mm-hmm. they're they're the majority of the breakout now. So that's nice to see. I think. I mean that that and it probably reflects the concern and and the action to take more students, maybe open a, some more schools. 
and, and get more perfusionists out there. So again, I think anyone who's been in this profession long enough, like Joe and myself, uh, recognize that this was a male-dominated field for a long time. But as you um, get down into that younger crowd, you're seeing a nice uh, mix and almost equal, if not a little bit more, in that youngest sector of females. So um, good to see um, in terms of equality and um, everybody getting in there. And if they like it, they, they want to do it. Now, wait, wait a second, Ann. Hold on. <laughs> okay, you know I was going to see this slide, okay? I have yes. not previewed these slides. Female, male, I, other, 3.7%, 70 years or greater. So, again, in, in our current society, we do um, gender by identity and how people identify as male or female or other. So we, having, we did include that this past year. I'm not, I'm not as surprised seeing the two top bars. I, I am surprised at that, at that lower bar. Well, and it could definitely be a flexion of the N number in that group. Fair enough, fair enough. Yes, that's true. Very good point. Okay. Okay. And I can't wait till you send me the survey. Mm. <laughs> okay. You're gonna need another category. I can't wait to hear what that suggestion is. <laughs> so, um, and then something that did stand out and I'm surprised, but Joe and I, you've already, we've been talking about it already today, is the difference in who's providing ECMO from our 27, 2017 survey to this past, sir, this past year. And again, you can see that um, in 2017, the, it was still most, majority perfusion. Um, this past cycle, you can see that ECMO specialists have uh, outpaced us. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting and, and not surprised. Right. I, I think that anybody who's, you know, been a, we've all been in the pandemic, but anyone who's been doing a lot of ECMO, adult ECMO, see, has seen this. Mm -hmm. And this wouldn't be a, su a surprise. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, and, and, and I absolutely can understand it. And I, I mean, we, we as a group were, were I mean, I think, we, I think we still are feeling the effects of uh, the, the COVID, the pandemic, and the uh, sheer volume of ECMO patients and duration that they were on ECMO. Um, it, it really affected us tremendously. Uh, and, but just from a, you know, depending on what ECMO does, if it, conti if it continues to grow as a, as a modality, it, its growth has just outpaced to a degree that I don't think perfusion alone has the uh, manpower strength to support it. Uh, there has to be another way of doing it. Now, I don't think 
turning it all over is necessarily the answer. I'm a much, I'm a much uh, stronger believer in a blended program that has perfusion oversight and management, but the at the bedside, uh, there has to be, we just don't have enough perfusionists to do that. And, uh, and that's, of course, a, a conundrum, because if you increase the number of perfusionists so that you can do that, and ECMO being a rather uh, uh, unpredictable sort of modality, and it can, it can go down and not need to be used for a, a significant period of time, uh, can be a real problem because then you do have a glut of perfusionists. And how you manage staffing on an unpredict with an unpredictable volume over time is very challenging. And I, I, I'd mm -hmm. love to hear your thoughts on how, you know, where you see that going. Again, I think the 24-7 bedside monitoring just doesn't work for perfusion. But again, I agree that we need to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And and it, it, for the other uh, therapies as well, um, mechanical circulatory support. Um, those things are in our wheelhouse. We, we train, we test, that's our scope. And I, while, we, while we, there might not be enough of us to do it day to day, every day, we can certainly be a part of the coordination, the education and the oversight. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it would, those, those therapies would be better served that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I, I think so. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, next slide. Okay, so some things that are coming up about the future here. And my, my face is kind of in the way of the top of this slide. <laughs> so, um, I'll, I'll go, I'll talk about the um, test. Yeah, so Ann, that's only on, that's, hand. hey Ann, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, so that's only on your end. I think, can she move herself off of her slide, David? Because we don't, you're not overlaying the slide to us. Okay, that's only me, on your computer. This. Never mind, you're right, now I'm getting smart here. Okay, Thank good. You. I did it. No worries. Okay. So again, I um, talked earlier about how we're really involved with all of our organizations, education, professional, and, and you know, in terms of collaboration. We have recently been talking with the program directors council on, you know, we put out that annual newsletter. I'm not sure how many people uh, go through and read it, but we do list out the number of CCPs from year to year, new, um, how many we've gained, how many we've lost, just through the certification um, process. But what we haven't been very good about is matching that with perfusion schools. How many students are enrolled? When, do, when are they projected to graduate? So when will they basically hit the market? And that's something we feel that with collaborating with the PPDC, we can provide a, a better snapshot of that in one place. So we, we have been talking about 
putting that in, in the annual report, adding that piece of uh, matriculation of students. So you can, um, the perfusion community can see that. And kind of put it side by side, put it together, instead of having to go to the program director's website to kind of get a handle on how many schools are open, how many students are coming out, and then you've got to go to our report to figure out how many CCPs we have now, how many are we losing or did we lose this past year due to retirement or loss of certification. So to have that in one place might help to put a better picture together, because if you go to any meeting, I know we've talked about it here um, often on, on your um, shows, people, workforce is important to perfusion, to the perfusion community. They want to know, are we going to be overrun or are we, are we becoming extinct? <laughs> mm -hmm. So, so I think, I think this information is going to help people get a better, get data around it to have a better picture instead of maybe, you know, hearing somebody say, oh, there's, there's a shortage. Well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And, and to have a little more um, accuracy on that so people can really look at that picture and say, okay, this, we're, this is about right, or I see, I see a glut coming, you know, just to kind of put some structure around it. So we're excited about that. Um, in terms of computer testing, um, we, we did uh, move away from our um, prior uh, computer test company and we um, started January 1st this year with, with a new company. And that was due to um, service in terms of um, how they worked with us, things that might happen at a testing site, uh, feedback we got from examinees. And so it was really time to look around for something better. So we took that on this year. And one of our uh, goals at that time was to provide real-time results at time of testing. Uh, everyone who's taken the test in the past knows you're waiting a couple of weeks um, for that letter. <laughs> and yeah. So, yeah. And and your employer's waiting for it. There, um, there's, there's a lot riding on getting those results. So this past spring exam, which just ended last weekend, we, at, at time of testing, we were able to let the examinee know um, how many correct total they got and what was um, required to pass. So they knew that walking out. Now, they still will need to get their formal letter from the national office. Um, they will get a diagnostic report of uh, how they performed in the different categories. So they'll get more information. But um, just talking to students um, at graduation and running that by them in terms of feedback, they, they were all about it. You know, we're an instant gratification society anymore. So this, this was seen, seen as a real positive and a, and a goal to strive for, and we just uh, completed that. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see the feedback we get from the examinees that just took this exam about that added feature. 
And of course, we want to improve the turnaround in getting that formal letter so it, it's so it's faster. And online filing, I'll be quite honest, um, the pandemic really um, hampered our, our hopes for enhancing um, the way you all go online and, and file your cases and recertify and provide your professional activity. Um, the company that we worked with was was decimated by COVID in terms of their workforce. Mm. And so the things that we really were hoping to roll out and have up and going by now um, were not able to happen. And we did have to um, move on with some other IT support. So I'll be the first to apologize that um, it's not as it's not what we wanted it to be. It's not what it can be. And that's what we'll be working on as well in terms of uploading files from electronic sources. Those of you that are using an EMR or you have a database, uh, we want to make sure that you could upload that pretty easily. Uh, we've had a lot of feedback from the community about the certificate and do we have to mail that out and the sticker and you know could we have an electronic version of that so all of those things are on the table uh relaunching the app so again those are things we really want to get to with it we just really um took a little bit of a hit with the pandemic there and for anyone who's ever called the national office you know you get a uh a real person and they just and they're all about helping you and they've been with us since the beginning not not every single person on staff but um a lot of them and pat, pat um, kirkland pat kirkland I know shout everybody. out to her and you know we every perfusionist whether you call the national office or not you really do we all owe them such a debt of gratitude for their passion and just their demeanor and their willingness and their they've just been there but these people are getting older and looking to retire so knowing that um, we the board will be um, looking at restructuring in the in the coming years what we what we want to happen is that you as the perfusion community really don't notice it too much and nothing changes for you or only gets better so that's that's our goal is that um it it goes seamlessly and we don't miss a beat and you always have the support that you need oh comments on that joe i know you yes you, you visited the national office more than once absolutely so if i can i'll tell one quick story uh if i may about pat kirkland somebody who i i have tremendous amount of respect for and love very much and 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 always think about it and hope for the best hope the best for in her future plans i know she's somewhat temp partially retired uh which i hate hearing because it means i'm going you know i'm i'm you know, I never thought it'd be that. her before me, honestly. She's a lot younger than I am. But uh, when I was doing the New Orleans conference uh, live, I remember uh, uh, my wife Vicki and I, we, we had these flyers printed 
Uh, we had 5,000 of them printed and they were all in these boxes and we put them in our little airplane and we flew to the Hattiesburg airport and Pat met us at the airport and we loaded these flyers into her car and then she drove us to the American board and we unloaded them and put them all out on desks so that the board could put all the stickers on them to mail them out to all of the perfusionists on a worldwide basis. We sent them to every CCP worldwide. That's why I had 5,000 of them. I think even even more than that, but, um, but it was a, uh, it was a fun, it was a fun trip. And it was my first, uh, uh, the first time that I was at the board and, uh, we had, I know we had, we went and had lunch. Uh, we had a really lovely time and it was great getting to, know her on a more personal level because all I ever knew of her for many, many years was a telephone call. And as you said, you call and she would always answer the phone or somebody else would, but she was always available and always very helpful. And uh, she'll be sorely missed, I think, uh, by the more. But Kathy is doing a great job. I know that she has sort of moved up. You know, Pat kind of mentored her and and she was, you know, Pat's protege, if we will, if we could say it that way. And I think she's going to do an outstanding job uh, moving uh, the board forward and working with you, helping you. I know that, uh, and you didn't address it, uh, hopefully you can, but that was my story about Pat. We had a great time and uh, we became closer. We were very close phone buddies, but we came a little more personal uh, friends at that point in time. And uh, I, Pat, if you're watching, I wish you well. Um, but, uh, I know that of course, you know, Mark Richmond, uh, passed and Beth, you know, stayed with it and hired Steven, um, Steven came on board and those, they have been working together, but I, I know that, uh, Beth is going to be retiring as well as, as is Steven. So, you know, what, what are we, what, what's the plan or who is going to supplant them as the new educate, uh, educators? Uh, on, uh, for the board. So the, Steve and Beth are um, co-executive directors um, now. And as they uh, transition on, we will be um, replacing them. And there are, are several management companies out there that work with nonprofits, which is what we are. And we are vetting them scrupulously <laughs> no doubt because they they have got to live up to some high standards mm -hmm. and as i said we don't want any of that to be be felt by the perfusion community what we want you to continue on and just things get better and better so and in in talking and at proposals from other groups we're number one is that you have you've got to be able to relate and communicate and serve the perfusion community in the way that they are accustomed mm -hmm. so yeah and i think that's a that's a big challenge for you um mm -hmm. you're you are now the president and the uh the, the it's a lonely office it's uh it's a tough thing to do um i have i guess really two questions um, i'll ask the the one question may be harder for you to answer so i'm gonna hold that for the second the first is notwithstanding the pandemic 
and how that would have been disastrous had you not transitioned to electronic uh, means of testing versus in person like it used to be. Um, do you foresee in the future ever going back to an actual in-person oral board uh, type of platform, which I still believe is far better at reflecting a person's understanding of their craft than is an electronic method for doing it. What's your thoughts on that? Um, and then I'll ask you, I'll let you answer that first and then I'll ask you the, the last question that I have. You, you know, I, like I shared earlier, you're, you're not alone in your thought that that is a valuable way to evaluate uh, someone's clinical skills and their ability to communicate. Uh, uh, it's, we have to in the operating room. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. And it's not always pleasant conversation when you're mm -hmm. talking with surgeons or other clinicians and when things aren't going well. Uh, this is a stressful job, we, we all recognize that. I think logistically, it's, it's challenging based on the way we used to do it. Now, does technology provide some opportunities there where you could take something from the oral ex examination experience and for lack of a better word, tweak it mm -hmm. with today's technology. You know, interesting idea. That's a very, you know what, that's very thoughtful. I, 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 that, that has given me some ideas. We'll, we'll need to talk about that offline. We need to go to dinner and have a conversation about that because you just got some ideas in my head, which is dangerous. Um, however, and with that said, I think that the boards for me, and and for those of you who don't know, and I don't know if you know this or not, you may, I've, I've done them three times. So the first time I did it was in 1980, was the first time I was eligible. I graduated in 79, and I was able to take the boards in 1980. Um, and passing that, that oral was a, it was a rite of passage. The, the, the experience itself was a rite of passage. Here are these people who are, you know, have been doing this job and I'm sitting in front of them and, and, and what, what room didn't you want to get? And, uh, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff felt like a rite of passage, but I did it then. And then um, I, you know, because of, and I passed um, and was certified, but then because of my own irresponsibility, I lost my certification and I had to retake the exam, both parts, in I believe it was 1980, I, I wanna say it was 85, it might have been 87, it was uh, in Philadelphia, I can't remember which year it was. And it was, it was written and oral, same thing, and I passed. And then I took it again, because I did the same thing, I was yet again irresponsible, and I lost my certification and had to retake it again. And it was in, um, I believe it was in 2000 and, uh, 
2000 and it was either 2003 or 2007 it was in it was in boston i can't remember anymore i've 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 got long COVID. i'm not going to blame it on early dementia i'm going to blame it on on long COVID. um but i took it again and it was a written uh but that it was in person but it was a written but then it was the written oral a written practical if you will so both parts were written and having all of those previous experiences, those two prior experiences and that, I was like, that was very underwhelming. It, it didn't feel right. But then I have never, and I don't plan on ever having to go take it a fourth time, um, but I'm, so I'm not gonna lose my certification, so I don't have to worry about it, but I can't, I, you know, I just don't, I don't, I, the, 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 the written, I don't have a problem with that being test uh being electronic test i i don't think that's that's i mean it is what it is whether you're there in a room and somebody's walking around and you're doing it with the number two pencil or not i don't think that makes any difference it's that second part um so those are my experiences those are my thoughts on all of that and i'd love to talk to you about it but my final go ahead you want to comment on that yeah i do because you know most of us as i said earlier that that examination process is a blip on your radar in your in your professional career. For some of us, it happened many many years ago, um, and there's there's um, no appetite that we've seen through survey to retest at a certain amount of time, like every ten years, or you know to do some of the things that um, other professions do. We just don't see um, people thinking that's desired or necessary. But the fact that you've gone th through a testing scenario so three different times, it's your, your feedback's very helpful. And I think that's where we would love more feedback from the perfusion community in terms of what your experience is with the certification exam. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do, we always ask for it at the end of someone's exam, but you know, what they'll tell you and, and if they feel like they don't want to really say anything uh, derogatory, you know, because they feel like there might be repercussions from that. I don't know. But the more we talk about what everybody experienced and what people feel is appropriate. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, very good point. Because, you know, I my reason was different. But if you just look at today, and it's not a category on your slide, but it, it, it's going to need to be moving forward. How many people that had left industry, left perfusion for whatever it was, because of, during the pandemic, whether because of it or not, at some point came back to the profession after various years, number of years of hiatus from industry. They may have stayed involved in industry, but they were not acting as a clinical perfusionist, lost their certification and came back. What I see just from an observer's perspective is a significant number of people that are still doing that who had left the profession for whatever reason coming back. That's what I see observationally. I don't know if that bears out in fact, but it's my perception anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't have a good handle on that in terms of re-entry. But for those who do re-entry, it's not easy. No. And 
and um, you you kind of wonder, are we making you know are our are the guidelines for it realistic and uh, approachable, but yet you know still uh, accomplish the mission. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, and do we have a good, a very because a lot of these people are very capable. They're excellent clinicians, um, but things things evolve, things change. Um, how we do perfusion today is not even closely resembling what I did 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago or how I learned. Um, the fundamentals are the same. Human anatomy and physiology doesn't change. But all of these things, you know, look, when we use 60 cycle, we didn't even, we didn't even have cardioplegia when I trained. It didn't exist. We use intermittent cross clamping. So a lot, all these things, the nuances of our profession have changed dramatically. Um, and I, I, I wish there was a way to take people who may have taken that time off and having a program designed as a preparation for the exam, you know, that is a little more robust than maybe, you know, what uh, Ohio State used to provide. They used to have that, uh, I can't remember the, Swank was the last name. I can't remember her last name. Um, I don't remember who the, there was a lady there that ran it. I just don't remember her name right now. But uh, but that was a it was a good program. I actually took that program uh, for the third time that I took the exam, and it was it was worthwhile. But I was still active in the profession. Um, having something that maybe instead of it being a, having to go back to an entire school, a a good maybe thirty day program that really prepared someone who had the base knowledge to get them caught up to speed to be able to take the exam very intense program for that would be something perhaps worthwhile to have it may not be realistic but it may be worthwhile having i'm not sure yeah and i appreciate that because knowing some re-entrants and and there you know there's a lot of anxiety there and they they're looking for ways to prepare especially if they you know, haven't been in the education for a while and computer testing might be new for some of them. Mm -hmm. Just so we're, we're, we're very geared toward perfusion graduates. There's no question in terms of the uh, examination process, but you know, there is a, a probably maybe possibly underserved group for mm -hmm. re-entry. Yeah, I and, think it would and, help and what their education and preparation could be. It would help our numbers because I would rather have somebody like that than someone who's going to a perfusion program that they're trying to, because of need, rush people through and coming out ill prepared. I would rather have those. I would rather the programs focus on creating graduates who exceed what our own standards were, which I thought were very high and very difficult to achieve. I'd rather that continue to be the case and help our numbers by bringing people back into industry that have already experienced and done that rather than shortening or reducing uh, the uh, the uh, quality of the education for the sake of ex expedient 
graduations because our numbers need the the uh, need we need the people. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something that you know I I do concern. I'm worried about you know seeing the type of people graduating from school that the schools maintain a very very high standard and that the exam not be made easier but that it really reflect a person's knowledge, understanding, training, because that will create training centers that, that are programs, training programs that will flourish and those that will not. And uh, I think, again, that's a, that's a market issue and a, a board issue that's way above my pay grade. Um, I'd like for you, if you could, I have one final question and uh, I'd like you to close us out on that. And that is, how can we, as a community, and for anybody who may see this now or who is watching it now or may watch it later, it, what can we do as a community to help Ann Grecho have the most successful tenure as president of the board? What, how can we help you? Talk to me. <laughs> Fair um, enough. And, you know, I would, even if you're not maybe enamored with what you experience or see in, in some of um, the perfusion organizations you can participate in, you should participate. Mm -hmm. Because those, those committees, that work being done is gonna affect you. Um, why not be at the table, a part of it? Um, you know, we're the board of directors. We're we're volunteers. I know, Joe, you give a lot of extra time, and you know, people are busy. But you're not going to be able to have too much of a voice about things you're not happy about if you're not participating in the process. And I I think. I always, I, I actually will be done with the board next year. It's my last year and mm. I'm, I'm done with my, my term. Um, I've, I've, I'm maxed out basically. Um, and I will continue to be participating in organizations. There's, um, there's a grassroots effort to get our Texas state society going for perfusion. That'd be great. And I, I really, I'm, I want to help there. I don't have the bandwidth to, you know, lead that charge, but I've definitely been involved with some of the people trying to get it going. You know, that's that's a great place is to, you know, you're with your colleagues, maybe some of them are friends, but you're talking about what's important to you and you know, sometimes we only hear from the loud voices. And then but, but yet you've got something to say or, you, or you're experiencing something that we're not aware of in terms of a board. And we don't ever want to make decisions that um, are to the detriment of someone keeping their certification. Um, so all these things about case requirements, what cases count, we, we've, we've d debate often because mostly because They'll write into the national office about something they're experiencing and, hey, can I use this for a case? Or uh, my surgeon's gone to 100% off pump. Um, how am I going to get my cases? You know, we need to hear those 
scenarios and what people experience because we're, we're going to make decisions and we want to make them to be broad enough but not, but not so um, exclusionary that people are going to lose out. We, mm-hmm. need every, we need all of us, but we need to, we need to know. And so I, I feel like in the maybe the past five or more years, I, I feel like the board is as, as like coming on these programs, doing um, talks at the uh, national meetings. We are approachable. We're, I, I'm going to work today. I'm on call. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm a perfusionist just like the other. I'm part of the 45, 4600. I need my 40 cases. I, I need my professional activity. We're all we're all on in this. So the more we can understand about what people are experiencing, what they're concerned about, we're just going to make better decisions. Absolutely. How can people best get a hold of you? Just go through the national office. Do you have a particular email that you use? Um, we can go through the national office, but I can also provide um, my personal email. Sure. Um, if you do that, can we, David? Can we add that to this? uh at the end or can you add it now you can add it in the comments okay yeah so what is the best email uh to we'll put that in the comments right now so people can see that it would be the one i used to send the slides your your icloud account yeah Mm -hmm. okay david you have it already so your icloud account okay very good we'll add that to the comments so people can get it Uh uh-oh what happened Oh, there you go. Oh, you good. Okay. Um, and uh, we'll make sure people get that. And we'll send out a notice too of how to reach out to you. So we'll let, send people a notice to tell them that we uh, this program exists and they can watch it at their leisure. And we'll also add that information in there on how people can reach you. And I can't thank, say again. Got it. They're putting it in now, so it'll end up here in a few minutes, and it'll be at the at the end of the program. But we'll make sure people are aware of how to reach out to you. And what I tell my colleagues is echo exactly what you just said, Ann, is please reach out to Ann. Reach out to the board. Send them a message. Send them an email about your, your, your concerns, um, your compliments, uh, suggestions, whatever the case may be, just let it be productive. If there's a problem, have a suggested solution at least if you can, but you know what? They're there to help solve our problems as uh, practicing clinicians. And, uh, and I know I've known her uh, long enough to know that she takes her role and her responsibilities very seriously. I know that the board does. And, uh, we, as a community, uh, we are all, we are the American board at the end of the day. Every CCP is a, is a, a stockholder in the American Board of Cardiovascular Perfusion. That is what our certification says. And so uh, let's all be active participants, not just members. How does that sound? Sounds great. Perfect. All right. We will see you all later. I want to thank Anne again, uh, congratulate her again, and uh, look forward to seeing you and talking to you in the very near future. We, I, I want to take you back to dinner again. Hopefully, you'll want to go back to Houston's. That was really good. You can't deny it. It was good. And uh, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go again and, uh, and have a good conversation. Thank you, everyone. Bye.
And I wish you all the best week ever. Be safe. Bye. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye. See you tomorrow. That reminds me. See you tomorrow. Is it Tammy's thing tomorrow? Knowledge Nuggets, John Ingram's Knowledge Nuggets tomorrow. So hopefully, and you can tune into that. Yes. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you.